Now you remember last week I opened the series about the living God, or that sermon about the living God, with a story about how God got his honor upon the Egyptians and upon Pharaoh and all their host. God is quite capable of making it known that he is God. He has all the power of the universe. He can do anything he so chooses to do. There is something here, though, that I want to explore today, and that is that he, through man's history, has chosen to show that he is God and that he is alive and that he has power through human beings. Now, we know very clearly that in Romans 1, we can understand and know God to a great degree by the things he has created. There here is a witness, a testimony, that there had to be a creator because these things could not just happen on their own. Impossible. So, his creation is a great testimony And we have already covered that in this series of God as Creator. So I won't review all that, but a few introductory remarks to undergird what I'm about to say. Now, mankind had turned utterly godless after Adam and Eve started the procedure. And by the time of Noah, there was nothing redeemable upon this earth If it was any good, all thought was evil, selfish, me first, continually. Now, God could have, and almost did, just simply wipe everyone out. But He chose to use Noah, a preacher of righteousness. And Noah produced a testimony that lasted a hundred years of building a boat an ark. And then he was told to go in it with his family, and then the rains came. So there was a preliminary testimony that there is a God. Nobody paid any attention. And this went on for quite some time before God began to show all mankind, yes, I really am here. I can break up the deeps, I can send rain, and I can float Noah's boat. And their last thought before they drowned in the waters was, Noah was right. I missed the boat. The point being, God used Noah to show the world that Noah was right. That there really is a God... And you can become the object of ridicule and persecution and look like the craziest family on earth by spending a hundred years building a boat on a high and dry place. But God had a point to make. It has it was made. Has it been forgotten? Yes, essentially so. God called Abraham, 
and began to work through him as a righteous man. His sons, Isaac, grandson Jacob, and then later through Joseph. Now, he had a line that stretched for four generations, which is amazing in itself, of righteous people there. But he did not use Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob to show that he was God to a world overrun by the Egyptian or Mitzriamic Empire. He allowed over 430 years a people to grow into millions of people. And then he said to Moses, I am going to show them who I am, and I am going to use you and your people to do it. So God could choose various ways. He could just appear, for that matter. But He doesn't work that way. He works through people. And by the time the Red Sea was finished, Pharaoh and all his army were dead, in spite of the movie where Pharaoh went back and sat on his throne dejected. It's not the biblical story. <clears throat> but the rest of the Egyptians... And the world knew there was a God. Water does not separate on its own and a wind blow and you walk through on dry land. But even those people he used for that incredible example of his power almost immediately turned against him. And in a little bit of hunger, a little bit of thirst... A short moment of deprivation, they forgot completely what God had just done and says, what you going to do next for me? You brought me out here to die. Now, he'd gone through all of this just to kill them, didn't he? Now, that seems ludicrous to us, but it was their attitude. And it was a real attitude. But God showed. Now, we could use many examples here. I don't want to prolong it, but let's use one more. Christ came to this earth, born as a babe, grew up, began teaching, and he healed a few people here and there. He turned some loaves and fish into a meal for thousands of people. He did some miracles. But there were a lot of people on earth who thought they knew the living God at that time. Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, different ones. Now, did these people recognize there was a God? Well, yes. They felt they worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had their own religion. They had their own way of doing things. But they recognized there is a God. Okay? We have a lot of people today who would say, well, oh, I'm not an atheist. I believe in God. Well, what kind of God? Some of them think He's a figment of your imagination. God is whatever you make Him in your mind. God is good, or however they want to put it. God, good is God. God is good. There are many different ways of looking at it. But do they recognize the living God? No, they do not. Satan is the God of this world. 
And he wears many guises. He comes in many forms. His demons can even appear in every way as angels of light. But Paul said, if they, I mean John said, if they bring not this word, there is no light in them, even though they may appear as light. Now we saw in Isaiah, I think it was 8, last week, where God said, to the word and the testimony. Now we have His word, but our lives have to become a living testimony to these words. And He has asked us to live by every word of God, not just the ones we like, but all of them. So, we have to become a living testimony that the Word of God is true and that there is a living God. So, Christ and those whom He called to become apostles set an example, a living testimony. Now, Christ was perfect, but His disciples were far from it. And they didn't even get the picture until after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost in Acts 2. Weren't converted. Did not have any strength. They had no power. They had no character to withstand persecution or ridicule. Even denied the Christ who had bought them. They were much like the church as we left it last week. In Isaiah 39, emasculated, powerless, no strength to do anything. He told them to tarry in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes because you can't do anything on your own. But when that Spirit came, it came with tongues of fire, it came with people speaking different languages so that people could understand what they were saying, the gift of tongues. It came with incredible healing, with people healed just from the apostles' shadow passing over them. What an incredible thing that is when you really grasp it. Thousands were converted, or partially converted, in one day. Let's understand, none of us are converted None of us. Now, we use the term and we throw it around. Well, yeah, there's a converted person or I'm converted. No, you're not. You are partially converted. You know what converted means? It means changed. Is anyone here completely changed? No, we are only partially changed. Therefore, we are only partially converted. It is a process. A continuing process, day to day, of continuing to change and become more converted from what we were. But God used those apostles then, with Christ going back to His Father, as a testimony in their lives that He was alive, that He was God. Now, I submit to you, that what happened in Noah's day, in Moses' day, in the day of the apostles, is an incomplete picture. 
when you are telling a story, you generally build it up and build it up, and then you have the punchline at the end. Anything builds toward a climax, does it not? You're building up to something. Now, what God has done from the time Adam and Eve sinned is begun working pretty much behind the scenes and building this to a climactic, end-of-the-age testimony that He is God and He is a living God. Now, I preface what we're about to get into today with those words, because last week we ended in Isaiah 39 with a church that has been set back on its base in Babylon, as Zechariah 5 indicates, carried there by two unclean birds that I think I can name as the Tkachas, essentially, and those with them. And it is powerless. Worldwide has disappeared, changed its name. It's evangelical. And not only that, but the splinters that come, have come off it continue to splinter. They continue to divide. And there is seemingly no end to the process. So the church, even what is left of it, is powerless. Eunuchs in Babylon, unable to do anything for God, for God's purposes, now what? Now what? Now that is the answer that a lot of people are deliberating over. Wondering, now what? Where does it go from here? Many of them think they have the answer, brethren. They think if they'll just preach the gospel around the world as a witness, all will be well and they'll still go to a place of safety and be saved and everything will be fine. That is not the case. That is not what the scriptural record says. They do not understand the Bible. They do not understand the prophecies. They do not understand what God is doing. Now, that's sad to say, but that is most of the church. They do not understand this word and the testimony that is here. Now, we are going to delve into that today. We have from time to time, and it is always behind everything we say and do of what God is going to do next, how He is going to work this out, and what the answers are. And it is revealed in this book, if we but understand it. But today, I want to impart to us more vision, more grasp of what God is going to do and how He's going to do it, because... He is again going to use human instruments to do it. We are human, so therefore we partially qualify. We are partially converted, therefore we partially qualify. We are part of the church of God, which means that partially we qualify. But... Our lives must be a testimony that God is God, as evidenced by how we live, by His words. And if we 
qualify more as a result of that, then perhaps we can be a part of the testimony that God is the living God. There is no greater honor. There is no greater opportunity. There is no greater <clears throat> inspiration than understanding what God is doing now and how and who He will use to do it. And the incredible possibility that we could be part of it. I want to be part of it. And I think you do too. And I think that probably most of the church would agree with that. They would like to be part of what God does. The problem is most of them do not even begin to grasp what God is going to do. Therefore, we need to be sure we do so that we can be part of it. And maybe we can be of benefit to some of those who do not understand. Okay? Let's get it. Let's understand it. Let's understand why we're here. Now, I'm going to pick up in chapter 40 of Isaiah. We have gone here before. And we have seen some of the things God is going to do. But I want to approach it today from this aspect of the living God. And how He is going to use an end-time people, as He has in the past, to show that. As I say, He could do it many different ways, but He has chosen to use people, because people is what this earth is all about. <clears throat> it's about expanding His family. It's about creating more gods to share his universe, and his life with. And he has chosen weak, base human beings to do that. So, from Isaiah 39, which says the church is effete, weak, unable to accomplish anything, and Herbert Armstrong died essentially with truth and peace in his day. And his sons have gone on and have accomplished very, very little in their professed goal. So let's pick it up in chapter 40, because leaving Herbert Armstrong, there is much more that needs to be done. And I think that we could all attest and would all believe that God has not shown the world yet that He is the living God. So he says in chapter 40, Comfort you, Comfort you, my people, says your God. Now, why would comfort need to be given in the middle of God tearing the church down and tearing it apart? Well, it didn't work under Herbert Armstrong completely. He was used of God to a certain point, and his job was finished. He did a great calling. And many people were called. But now God is doing some choosing. Once the calling is complete, and he will choose a few to do this job, even as he chose only 300 out of thousands and thousands to do a job against the entire Midianite army with Gideon. He is calling, 
are his called, now he is choosing a select few. Scary but true. Now, what is to follow here then is to give answers to what has happened. Here we are, weak and worthless and unusable in any power, in any way, in the world as a greater overall church. No one out there is doing any great work and neither are we. So, we need words of encouragement. We need words of, of comfort. We need to know an answer, in other words. What is the answer to all these problems in the church? And there are people right now going through another dose of it as the biggest one has just broken apart. And if they weren't seeking before, maybe some of them will begin seeking now as the devastation continues. So the only comfort is to know how God is going to fix it. Because fix it, he shall. So what we are about to read is going to give us hope, comfort, vision, and inspiration. Because we are God's people. And we need that. Now, if we understand it, then there comes a point where we can share it and help others to come to see. It's sad that they don't, and it's humbling that we do. It's scary that we do, because with understanding comes responsibility. And with responsibility comes accountability. So if you do not want to be responsible, if you do not want to be accountable, I suggest you hang up your telephone or pick up your books and get out of here now. That said, let's continue. Comfort you, comfort you, my people, says your God. Speak you comfortably to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received of the Eternal's hand double for all her sins. Now this is a projection and a prophecy of an end to the trouble that we're in. And the next few chapters are going to show us how God is going to do this. Now, it is not a fait accompli today. The church is still dividing and splintering. And people are going off on their own tangents, their own desires, their own human needs and weaknesses, their own pleasures, their own goals and purposes, and perhaps losing focus of why we are here. We need to get our focus very clearly in mind of why we're here. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness. So there has to be a cry made in this spiritual wilderness or famine that the church has today. And I do believe that it has to be in a physical wilderness as well, because it is quite clear in Micah 4, Zephaniah 2, that we have to gather away from 
Babylon even physically, not just spiritually, in order to what? To work together to do a work which we shall see. Now, God is splintering, scattering, and punishing the church today. But this message of Isaiah needs to be proclaimed. People need to understand. It will go on the internet. It will be there for anyone who wants to pay attention. Cry, prepare you the way of the eternal. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So, we need to prepare a way for God to show that He is God. And I'll back that up with Scripture in a moment. And to make straight in the desert a highway. There are many crooks and bends in the trail. Much lack of understanding. People don't grasp what's happening today or what the solution is. So we're supposed to straighten that out, or somebody is, and make it plain to straighten out the story, if you will, to take the bends and the crooks out of it and make clear what is going on. That's a straight highway for our God to fulfill His purposes. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. Now, we speak of this in terms of topography, but let's also understand that hills and mountains represent governments, peoples. Every valley shall be exalted. Now, a valley is down low, isn't it? A valley of people is low. God says, I take the weak and the base to what? Show my glory, he says. He doesn't use the mighty and the noble, but he's called the weak and the base. The small, the not so smart, the weak, base. That's, that's it. All right, we qualify so far, don't we? So he's going to exalt the valleys. He's going to exalt the weak and the base. And those that are so-called mighty and noble, those who are in control, those governments of men, are going to be knocked flat. And the glory of the eternal shall be revealed. So God is going to raise up a meek and humble people, as he says at the end of Zephaniah. And he is going to knock flat the vanity, the pride, and the ego of this world. And God's glory is going to be revealed as a result of this. So, if we are weak in base and understand about God, then we are possibilities for being used to do exactly what he's saying here. To be exalted from where we are today and to become a part of showing that God is to be glorified, that He is alive, and we are to be His witness and His testimony of that, as we shall see as we proceed. 
That's the point, though. You do some preparatory work, and then God reveals Himself through people that He raises up from the valley to show that His glory is there. And all flesh shall see it together. So we are talking about a worldwide thing here. This will not be done in a corner. All flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Eternal has spoken it. It is as good as done. It shall happen. The voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? What is the message? And he said, oh, and it said, all flesh is grass. And all the goodness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the Spirit of the Eternal blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God shall stand forever. So he shows that the people of this world, on this earth, are just like grass in the sun. Flower in July. They wither, fade, die, and go away. God is going to show all flesh that they are nothing but grass. There's an expression close to that I won't use. Verse 9. Better translated, You that bring good tidings to Zion, get you up into the high mountains. Physically and spiritually, I think, apply here. But before this is done, those that God sends are going to go before the highest governments of this earth and the one government ultimately that is there in a tremendous final witness that God is God. You that bring good tidings to Jerusalem, to Zion and Jerusalem, we know those are code words for the church in Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Now, if you're going to ultimately go before all the governments and the high places of this world, you have to be not afraid and lift it up. Now, this is different already, isn't it, from what we left in the end of Isaiah 39? Not emasculated anymore. Not weak. Not unable to perform but able to, not afraid, with power to generate family for God. Not emasculated. Say to the cities of Judah, now here's the next part of the message, Behold your God. Handel made great use of this section in the Messiah. Powerful music. Behold your God. Now that is our subject in this series. To give God honor. To give Him glory. And He is going to show His glory. And He is going to use people to do it. So, we need to behold our God. 
to recognize Him for what He really is. To have this in our mind, our emotions, our feelings of who God is and what He is. Because, brethren, it is going to become a job of the people of God to show who He is. And that's what this instruction right here is all about. Show the church. Ultimately, show the world. Behold your God. Behold, the eternal God will come with strong hand, and His arms shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His work before Him. Revelation eleven eighteen <coughs> speaks of Christ's return and uses almost those same words. So, what he's talking about here is something preparatory to Christ returning. This is an end-time prophecy. You remember John the Baptist came and prepared the way for Christ first coming to this earth as a human being. And now God is using these same scriptures to tell us to prepare a way for Christ to return again. He did not bring his reward with him before, did he? John the Baptist came and preached and lost his head. Christ came and preached and died and was resurrected and went back to his Father in heaven. So this was not fully fulfilled. Now, it spoke of John the Baptist as one crying in the wilderness, didn't it? But it was only a partial fulfillment because Christ coming the first time was the institution of what is yet to come. That was the beginning with a babe in arms. Now we're going to see a king coming in glory. We're leading and building toward the climax here. And we are to be part of that. Let's get it. Let's understand it. Let's let it empower us to be what we need to be. If lack of vision causes people to perish, vision can cause them to live and produce. And we need to grasp the vision. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. He's going to do that in the millennium. But he is going to do it even before that with a small group of people that will be here as a testimony that he is God. And Zechariah 2 says that he will come and dwell with us. Now, I'm not saying, and we won't go into all that, whether he will be visible, but he will certainly be with us. Emmanuel means God with us. So he changes it then. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Scientists, with all their most powerful equipment, cannot tell you how big the universe is. We're just now discovering more planets in our little solar system here. As of last week or the week before, they made an announcement. More planets found, this side of Pluto, I guess. Who's done that? Is he alive? Does he have power? Does he know what he's doing? 
Who can even begin to comprehend the sands of sea on all the beaches and all over the world? Who has directed the Spirit of the Eternal, verse 13, or being His counselor has taught Him? Any, any of us have good sage advice we give to God on any regular basis or have ever? I don't remember ever coming up with anything I think I ought to tell him that he didn't know. <coughs> with whom took he counsel and who instructed him? Does he ask you once in a while, you know, I just don't know what to do here. Would you help me out? Anybody had that experience? I didn't think so. Who's taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding? No one. Behold, verse 15, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he takes up the coasts as a very little thing. All the coastlines of the world and the land then that they encompass and surround is nothing before God. The heavens are his throne, the earth is his footstool. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. Gather up all the animals of a verdant land and all the trees, and they aren't worth a fire big enough or a sacrifice big enough to offer before God. Nothing down here is very big or means nothing. Or anything, I mean. All nations before Him are as nothing. And they are counted to him less than nothing in vanity. This whole earth and everything on it is nothing compared to God. Now, he's making a statement here. You know what? He's going to back it up. He's going to prove it. All these great and mighty in mankind who thinks we're something and thinks our nations are something and our military, and whatever else we think is something, he is going to show our nothing. So he's making a statement that only a living God could back up. Now, men can stand up and say they're Mr. Everything, can't they? But what happens? They all die. This is a living God who will not die. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to Him? There's nothing that you can compare to God in any way. The workman melts a graven image and the goldsmith spreads it over with gold and casts silver change, or chains. He that is so impoverished that he has no oblation chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks to him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Men try to make idols. They try to make things that are important. But they all come to nothing. We're talking about the eternal here. Not something that man makes. Verse 22, It is he that sits upon the circle of the earth. And the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretches out the heavens as a curtain and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in. That brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth as vanity. Remember now, this is a prophecy. And if he states this, 
then he has to do it to prove that what he's saying is correct. He has to show that the princes are as nothing. Other words, otherwise, it's just so many words. Now, you've probably heard braggarts in your life. People who will tell you of all the wonderful things they have done and how smart they are and how incredibly competent they are. And they'll tell you all the great things that they have accomplished in their lives. And we get really, really tired of hearing some people who will try to impress us with how important and great they are. He brings that to nothing. Yes, they shall not be planted. Yes, they shall not be sown. Yes, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither. And the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. Now, there's a, a repeat of what he said up there in verse 7. The grass withers. All mankind is going to wither before God. Verse 25, To whom then will you liken me, or shall I be equal, says the Holy One? I can do this, and not only am I talking, I'm not bragging, I can do it, and I shall. And then you will know that I am the living God. He can back it up. Braggarts cannot. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who has created these things that brings out their host by number? He calls them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one fails. Everything God has created has not failed. And he can number and count all the stars. We have a few names for a few of them, but we can't even begin to count them. Verse 27, Why say you, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hid from the eternal, and my judgment is passed over from my God? A similar scripture to what we read the other day about, well, God doesn't pay any attention. He doesn't know what's going on, or He doesn't do good and He doesn't do evil. He's just kind of there. He's getting old and He can't, He's feeble, but I guess I believe in God. <laughs> now, we've got to have a little stronger belief than that. Have you not known, have you not heard that the everlasting God, the eternal, the creator of the ends of the earth, faints not, neither is weary. He isn't old, he isn't weary, he isn't tired. Therefore, there is no searching of his understanding. He understands everything. He knows everything. You, you can't call him out. You get in a debate with him, you're going to lose. He gives power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases strength. So he's going to raise up the valleys, as he said at the beginning of this. He's going on to explain here what those beginning statements of chapter 40 are about. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. Now, we, most of us, are getting older. And he says he'll raise up the old and give them deer legs, give them strength and energy to do. He'll raise up the faint. Even the young in this world are going to become weary and faint. But they that wait upon the eternal shall renew their strength. Those that are old or sick and their strength has gone away are going to be renewed. More so than even the young people. 
<coughs> who still have physical strength and energy. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. God can give power. And he's stating here that he is going to do so. Those who wait, those who are patient, those who believe there is a living God and are willing to do it when, how, and where he chooses to do it. Chapter 41. Keep silence before me, O coasts, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near. Then let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment. All right. Everybody stand back and be quiet because God is going to do something here. And there is a people who will renew their strength. We left worldwide in the end of chapter 39, weak, emasculated, no strength, no power to, to generate children. And God says He is going to cause a people to renew their strength, to recapture that which was lost. Let them come near. Let them get close to God. And once that is done, then let them speak. Not before. It would be premature. Come near to God. Doesn't Jeremiah tell us that we will find Him when we seek Him with our whole heart? Not just partially. Not just when we have time in spite of our other desires and passions. But to approach God as God. There's the focus. That's what I was trying to get at when I was talking about 1 Corinthians 7. That marriage and children and all those things physically pale into insignificance compared to God's purpose in regenerating His children and marrying our husband-to-be Christ. We have reached a time where the focus on the spiritual and on Christ has to be the main focus and all these other things are almost unimportant by comparison. And if we focus on the wrong thing, we may not be part of what God is doing. But what he's saying here is not to live as a human being, but wake up. Come near to God, and then let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment. We need to work together as a family here. The judgment of the world is coming. And we are to be a part of God showing His judgment on this earth and who He is. Who raised up the righteous man from the east, called him to his foot, gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings? He gave them as the dust to his sword, and as driven stubble to his bow. Now this could be speaking of, I think, Zerubbabel, the leader of the two witnesses. It's a man who will come from the east. On a spiritual level, he is a Cyrus who will who will help deliver. There is one on the physical level as well. He pursued them and passed safely, even by the way that he had not gone with his feet. 
So God is going to cause someone to arise who will go places he's never been before. Who has worked and done it, calling generations from the beginning. I, the eternal, the first, and with the last. Now, God was the first, and I think it's interesting how he put that. He will be with the last. We're the last. This generation, all you old people, is not going to die out until these things are done, Christ himself said. I am he, states our God. The coast saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid, drew near, and came. So, people around this world are going to get the message. And they are going to begin to arrive to help do the work of God. He says in Haggai that he is going to raise a remnant of the people to come and build his temple. They have to come together. They have to be together to do it, to encourage and strengthen one another. It is both a spiritual temple, and I now believe a physical temple as well. Both must be done. And to do the physical one, you certainly have to be in the same location. So, people are going to come together. Now, they're going to do it in the millennium in a bigger way, but they're going to do it ahead of time in a smaller way. Remember, this, is prior, this isn't talking millennium yet. It will apply at that time because the Word of God is repeated several times. But we're talking here about the time prior to God showing who He is. He is about to do that. And He's going to call people together to help do it. It says, They helped everyone his neighbor, and everyone said to his brother, Be of good courage. Everyone is going to encourage each other, because this will be done in terrible times. So the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith, and he that smoothed with the hammer, him that smote the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering, and he fastened it with nails, that it should not be moved. So everybody's going to help each other to do their particular job, whatever it is. <clears throat> but you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. He is lumping those here at the end who will do his work together with his friend Abraham. He wants us to be his friends. Christ even offered friendship there in his last talk to the disciples, did he not? Not just servants, but friends. So he's offering to be our friend. Everybody needs a friend. God is our biggest friend. Now we can be friends with and help and encourage one another but ultimately, you go to your best friend on your knees. That's where the best answers come from. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth. He's going to gather his people from the four corners, he says in several places. And call you from the chief men thereof. So, we've been following what? Our governments on this earth. And he's calling us from them, away from them. And said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you away. 
So he's calling a people away from whatever governments physically and even in the church they may be involved with to follow a certain course of action and to do his end time work. Fear you not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. Why would you fear or be dismayed? Are people in a lot of congregations in the church of God, the splinter groups, afraid? No, because they think all they have to do is keep preaching and they'll go to safety and everything will be fine. We're about to enter a time where if we do the work of God and admit that God is God, there will be danger. But we are not to be to fear or be dismayed. To have fear and dismay, you have to have something to fear. And there will be plenty to fear. But he says, don't do it. Fear me. That's what he said back in Isaiah 8. <clears throat> fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Now, there will be the acid test. Will we stand up in power, not emasculated, and say that God is God, and I do not fear what man can do to me. I fear him who can destroy both body and soul in the lake of fire. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I will help you. Yes, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. I have said what I have said, he says, and it is right, and it is righteous. Follow it, and I will back your play. He is sending us into terrible times to do a work. Behold, all they that were incensed against you shall be ashamed and confounded. Anybody that tries to stand in your way is going to be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing, and they that strive with you shall perish. Ultimately, this will wind up with the two witnesses, and anyone who stands against them, fire will come out of their mouths and devour them. That is the ultimate climax of what God is building up to here. Well, not the ultimate. That's dying in the streets and being resurrected at the return of Christ. And then the world will swallow hard. This is leading exactly where God is taking it. You shall seek them and they shall not find them. Those who are your enemies, they're going to run and hide. Even them that contended with you. They that war against you shall be as nothing, and as a thing of nothing. Do we believe that? Are we willing to stand on that? Or are we some of the eunuchs of Isaiah 39? He's calling on a people. He will give power that they not be powerless. For I, the Eternal, your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. How many times does he have to say it till we get the point? Fear not, you worm Jacob. Yeah, you're just a worm. 
Not just one of you, but all of you combined are a worm. And you men of Israel, I will help you, says the Eternal, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. So he's calling us out to face the world. And he said, don't worry, I will take care of you. I will take care of your enemies. You have a work to do for me. That will be underlined a little further down. Behold, I will make you a new sharp threshing instrument, having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small, and shall make the hills as chaff. Now, he used winnowing grain, and yet he's mixing his metaphor here with the hills and the mountains. Well, the hills and the mountain are people, and the people are like grains, and they will be threshed before God's people. This same analogy is repeated in Micah 4, or 5, I think 4, yeah, down a little ways in 4. You shall fan them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Eternal, and shall glory in the Holy One of Israel. This is premillennial. There's not going to be any threshing in the millennium. The threshing will have been accomplished. Then people will be meek and humble and ready to seek God's way. So this is prior to that. When the poor and needy seek water, when the people in God's church are looking for answers, and there is none, and their tongue fails for thirst, I, the Eternal, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. So those who begin to truly seek God are going to find answers. He's giving us here the answer to the problems that the church faces today. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, uh, the myrtle, the oil tree, and I will set in the desert the fir tree, the pine, and the box tree together. So in a dry and thirsty land, God is going to establish seven trees, churches. He speaks of three that will fall in Zechariah 11. But he says, I am going to plant seven. Remember back in chapter 4 of Isaiah, seven women will take hold of one man. Women are churches as well. So seven are going to come seeking the one that God has set as the leader, which is Zerubbabel, one of the two witnesses. That they may see and know and consider, think about, and understand together. When God puts the remnant of the seven churches of Revelation together to do a work, they then will understand that the hand of the Eternal has done this, and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Now, any work of men that we try to put together today will not do that. But when God calls His elect from the four corners of the earth and brings them together to set them against the world and to set them as an example to the world, then they will understand that it is God that had to have done this because man couldn't do this we got men out there all over the world, right now in the church, trying to generate children for their congregations. And it isn't working 
And in fact, they continue to divide and scatter instead. Produce your cause, says the Eternal. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the King of Jacob. Give me all the answers for why you're doing what you're doing, and it isn't working. Let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. You're going to tell us what's going to happen? Most of them are scared to death of prophecy. They don't know. And they're scared to say. And some are making prophecies that are really off the wall. I just read one guy, I get his email every week. He says that the nation will fall in 2020 now. Because he has the prophecies of Abraham that tell him that. He thinks he's got it all figured out. Boy, he better get some props out if he thinks it's going to last that long. Let them bring forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things, what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare us things for to come. He says they have no vision. They have no understanding. They're like sleeping dogs. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Come on, let's have some answers, God says. The only answers we're going to find are in this book, properly read and understood, and believed and followed. Behold, you are of nothing, and your work of nothing. An abomination is he that chooses you. God says that he loathes those three churches in Zechariah 11, that he is going to cut down those three pastors or shepherds in one month. All right, then he says, I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come from the rising of the sun, shall he call upon my name. So God is going to raise one up who comes from the north, but when he comes, he's going to come from the east. I will not speculate there. I think I know or have a pretty good idea who this may be talking about, but we shall see. And he shall come upon princes as upon mortar and as the potter treads clay. Remember Zechariah 4 says, before, Zechariah, before Zerubbabel, the mountains and hills shall be made plain. Flatten them out. Who has declared from the beginning that we may know? How do we know this? That we may know, and before time, that we may say, He is righteous. How do we know that someone is coming, and that it will be a righteous person when he arrives? Yes, there is none that shows. Yes, there is none that declares. Yes, there is none that hears your words. Even if you say it, there's no one to hear it. It says they, they don't understand what's coming. They just don't get it. The first shall say to Zion, Behold, behold them. So someone is going to have a message about those who are to come. And I will give to Jerusalem one that brings good tidings. You can put all the splinter churches together, and out of all of us combined, God is going to send one who will bring good tidings to the church 
of what is to come, what is to be, and how it is all going to come down and happen. That's all. Just one. For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counselor, that when I asked of them could answer a word. The churches simply do not know what is going on. God is making that very plain. Behold, they are all vanity, their works are nothing. All the money they spend and the booklets and the broadcasts they put out are accomplishing nothing. They are eunuchs in Babylon. They're molten images and wind and confusion. Now, behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. So God is going to send someone who is not in that sense powerful, does not speak uh, in that fashion. Now, this is, of course, a prophecy of Christ Himself, who does speak quietly, and yet He is capable of thundering, and He shall thunder in the future. A voice of many waters, as Revelation 1 puts it. So, Christ is depicted both ways. And here, it appears that there is a person who tends to be meek and gentle in spirit, for the most part, and yet God will use him very powerfully. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth, and the coastline shall wait for his law. Ultimately, Christ, but there comes one prior to that who is a type of Christ to come. God works through human instruments. Never forget. He's going to send us a Moses and Elijah, as Malachi 4 shows. Thus says God the Eternal, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth and which comes out of it, He that gives breath to the people upon it, and the Spirit to them that walk here therein. I the Eternal have called you in righteousness, and will hold your hand, and will keep you, and give you for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. Now did not Christ say that we are to be a light set upon a hill, not to be hid, so that the world could see the light. He was quoting from Isaiah when he said that. Almost the same words. He quoted these prophets many, many times. But he has called a people here at the end to be a light to the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners, from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. We have a church today, a nation on a, bigger, a larger sense on a physical level, but we have a church who is sitting in the prison of their own darkened thoughts, who do not see the light, who do not understand what God is doing, how He is doing it, and how He is going to bring an end to the troubles, and how God's people are ultimately to be comforted. I am the Eternal. That is my name, the Eternal Living One. 
And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. He wants true people who will not worship idols of any kind, of their own mind, of their own passions, of their own desires, of their own focuses. He wants those who will put Him first as the living God. Put His work first above their own physical, carnal, human desires. And that is not an easy chore. It is very, very difficult to do. But that's what he's looking for. Behold, the former things are come to pass. And new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Now that's what he's doing here. He's telling us of the things that are going to be. That which is past is past. Herbert Armstrong and his work are past. They're gone. He's dead. He's going to do something new. <coughs> and that's what he introduced here at the beginning of chapter 40. He's going to do something new. And before it happens, he says, I will tell you of them. And he used Isaiah to write them down here for us to read and to comprehend and understand. Let him who has ears to hear, hear. Let them see what is written in their Bibles in front of them. Verse 10, Sing to the Eternal a new song, and His praise from the end of the earth. You that go down to the sea and all that is therein, the coasts and the inhabitants thereof. He calls out for people to sing His praise. Let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift up their voice, and the villages that Kadar does inhabit. Doesn't he tell us in Zechariah 2 that Jerusalem shall be as villages inhabited with much men and cattle? Right in the end time, at the time of the two witnesses and the remnant, as the temple is to be built. So villages will be built in the wilderness. And he says, from there then, lift up your voice. Let the inhabitants of the rock sing. Now Christ is the rock. But he has given us Zion as a rock that ultimately will become a place of safety and refuge. And he will be there to protect it. Because whatever place you are on this earth, they have weapons. They have a capacity to destroy any of us anytime, anywhere, don't they? But he will be a wall of fire and a covert from the heat and protect his people and these villages in the wilderness. <clears throat> Let them shout from the top of the mountains to be heard and seen. Let them give glory to the Eternal and declare His praise in the coastlines of the earth. He's calling a people to show His glory. If you're getting sleepy, there's that bird again. Verse 13, The Eternal shall go forth as a mighty man, he shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. When he begins to work with a small people, the whole world is going to get jealous. And God is stirring up that jealousy. And they will come against God's people. He shall cry, yes, roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. They're going to learn. He's alive. I have long time held my peace. I have been still and refrained myself. Now will I cry like a travailing woman. I will destroy and devour at once. 
So God says, you haven't heard much from me. I've been pretty quiet. But now I'm going to be like a woman in a birth pain. I'm going to scream. I will make waste mountains and hills and dry up all their herbs. And I will make the rivers islands and I will drive up, dry up the pools. I'm going to dry up every part of civilization down there below me. This culture that we have created is going away. And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will make, lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do to them and not forsake them. Now, he's already told us we're to cry aloud as a voice in the wilderness and make the places straight. So God says, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to use human instruments to do it. And that can be you and me. If we will dedicate ourselves to the living God and not to our own desires. Uh, let's see, I'll make the crooked things straight. These things will I do to them and not forsake them. He said he will never forsake us in the New Testament. So once he starts this process, he's not going to drop us in the middle of it, brethren. He's going to stay with us. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed that trust in graven images, that say to the molten images, you are our gods. Anything but the true God people can worship. Covetousness is idolatry. Anything that we put before God is idolatry. That's just a fact. We have to put Him first above every desire we may have. Can we comprehend that? Hear you deaf, and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf is my messenger that I sent? The one that he sends, I believe, from the north who comes from the east, is currently blinded. We used to use this verse right here in terms of Herbert Armstrong, who was physically becoming deaf and blind. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf, is my messenger that I sent? Who is blind is he that is perfect and blind as the Lord's servant? Seeing many things, but you observe not. Opening the ears, but he hears not. Doesn't He hears it, but doesn't really get it. Now, Herbert Armstrong became blind and deaf physically. And he did not have vision beyond the calling work that he did. That's as far as it went. He told the ministry just before he died, My work is finished. Now get the people ready. And most of the church is forgetting about the people and trying to preach the gospel. That's not what God tells them to do, and it's not what Herbert Armstrong told them to do, and it isn't working. But this one, see, Herbert Armstrong told me he was a rebel. I think he thought his son was the Joshua of Zechariah 3 as well. And that is true, I believe, to an extent. They were a minor in-time fulfillment of those things. But they did not see them through and finish them. It was an end-time temple that was built. 
But it was not the final one. It came apart. And now the latter day temple must be built. That was the former temple in the end time. The latter is just ahead of us. So even as Herbert Armstrong was physically blind and deaf, the one spoken of here has some spiritual deafness and blindness. It's not a matter of physical here. It says, seeing many things, but you don't observe it. You don't get it. Opening the ears, but not really hearing it. The man that I have in mind has heard these things, but he didn't really get it. He will. The Eternal is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. The way he lives is good, is a rebel bell. He will magnify the law. He is a type of Moses there in Malachi 4. Moses was the lawgiver from God. It was God's law, but he used a man to bring it down. And he's going to do the same thing again today. And make it honorable. The law of God is what's important in the conduct of human life. And it is in ill repute. The world says it's done away in all so-called Christians. And even the churches don't feel the teeth of the law anymore. It shall be felt. This is a people robbed and spoiled. Are we not a church robbed and spoiled? They're robbing us of our vision by preaching milk. They're robbing us of our purpose by getting on with things that they think need to be done that God says don't need to be done. Matthew twenty four fourteen, and the preaching of the Word as a witness, the gospel around the world as a witness, is yet to be done by two men and by the group of people with them and behind them and helping and aiding them. And then the end will come. When they die, the end will come three and one-half days later. Herbert Armstrong's been dead for a quarter of a century, and the end has not come. He did not preach the gospel as a witness around the world, and the men who are trying to do it now are effete, emasculated units, spiritually, who can accomplish nothing. Now, let me rephrase that clearly. No, that's probably plain enough. A people robbed and spoiled, ruined. The church is ruined. They're all of them snapped in holes and they're hidden prison houses. Spiritual bands and bars that they don't know how to break and they don't know the answers. They are for a prey. And none delivers for a spoil. And none says, restore. They don't know the answer. They don't know what to restore. God says in the end, truth will be restored. Herbert Armstrong did not finish that job by any means. Who among you will give ear to this? Who's going to listen? Who in the church is going to hear? Who's going to listen? 
You can preach Isaiah till you're blue in the face, and I do. Nobody listens. Now, God is going to have to do some things that cause them to listen. For His glory to be shown. Not yours, not mine, not ours, not any human beings, but God's glory. That's what we're here to show. That's the job we've been given to do, is to show God's glory. Who will give ear to this? And who will hearken and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to the robbers? Who destroyed the church? He answers it right here. Did not the eternal, he against whom we have sinned? Who did he say would spew the church out in Revelation 3? He said he would. Of course, all those who think they're Philadelphians, and that's nearly all of them, think that he spewed somebody else. So nobody comprehends. Nobody gets it. Nobody understands. It's always the other guy. You know what? I can't do that, can you? I think I was responsible, in part, for God spewing us out. I don't think I was as wholehearted before God as I needed to be and still do. Maybe I was part of Philadelphia under Herbert Armstrong, but I sure became lackadaisical and slack and lay at a sin. Got to repent. But anybody who still thinks that he was one of the chosen Philadelphians, and nothing's wrong with Philadelphia, cannot see. They cannot apply it. They can't grasp it because they don't think it applies to them. So who's going to listen? Who gave the church, spiritual Israel, Jacob, for a spoil? Read the book of Lamentations. It says, I did it, I did it, I did it, I did it. Over and over and over again. Did not the eternal, he against, we have sinned. Who could blow apart God's church except God? Now, he calls his church the apple of his eye. You think he's going to let Satan scatter it without his approval? No. God may have used Satan or Baal or whoever in the past <coughs> to do his dirty work. There's always somebody around ready. Let me tempt Adam and Eve. Okay, go for it. God even said, hey, Satan, have you seen Job down here? He's doing pretty good. Ah, it's just because you give him everything and hedge him about. I can get him. There's always somebody around, Satan, human beings, ready to do the dirty work for God. But God wanted the dirty work done on Job is the reason he sicked Satan on him. And God wanted the church blown apart and spewed out, and Satan may have done some of the dirty work, and men. But God was behind it. He directed it, and He said how far it can go, 
And it isn't done yet because three have not fallen in one month yet. It's not a done deal yet. I gave them for a spoil. He against whom we have sinned. For they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient to his law. This is the way walk you in it. Follow in his footsteps. Think as Christ thought. Bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. We have not come anywhere near that yet. We have a way to go. We were not obedient to his law. We sought our own pursuits. We said the law was good. But if we wanted to do this or that or the other thing, then lust or covetousness or lying or cheating or stealing... We're okay in this particular case because that's not really what I'm doing. We justify all kinds of things that we should not be doing. And humanly, we think we get away with it. Therefore, he has poured upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle, and has set him on fire round about. Yet he knew not. God has set the church on fire, and burned it down. But people still don't get what is happening. And it burned him, yet he laid it not to heart. We've all been burned. People have their war stories to tell. But they, we, just, we just don't get it. We're not understanding what God is doing and why He's doing it. He started this section with comfort you, comfort you by people. Show them the answer. And yet, He comes back in this context and shows that even though the answer might be here in Isaiah, people don't grasp it, they don't see it, they don't get it. And if you preach it to them, they still won't comprehend it. We're in a sad situation. But God here is giving us the answer. Unfortunately, for this sermon, I'm out of time, so I can't finish the story. But God willing, we will. And we'll understand. We'll grasp what God is doing. And when we do, it's going to help us to better accomplish what we have been sent here to do. That I firmly believe. And that's why I think that this message about the living God and how He is going to use people to show that He is the living God is a very important one right now. So we didn't get to the full answers today, but we're headed that direction.